struts like John Wayne, resembles Jim Carrey, and dresses like he's visually impaired. Because he is Insight. Insight with Mark Farrell on the Progressive Radio Network. 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 Ah, yes. Thursday morning, New York City coming to you live. Hey, it's Mark Farrell on the Progressive Radio Network. How are you today? Hopefully, wherever you are, it's a decent day. It certainly is an odd day today, an anniversary of the insurrection. Lots of media coverage, lots of video that I'm kind of tired of seeing, but we're going to talk about that. We have a lot of great things coming your way. We're going to be talking about um, genocide in the United States. My guest, Alex Hinton, is an expert on genocide. He's a professor at Rutgers University in New Jersey, and his new book, It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the U.S. is an amazing read, and we'll meet him in a few minutes. We'll be talking about uh, the weather, Chicago, like all kinds of craziness <laughs> that's ensuing, and of course, the pandemic. But I have to say that we're up for our storm number two in one week right here in New York. As of right now, as of Friday morning around 2 o'clock in the morning, we're going to get a good dumping so uh, the Farrell children are extremely psyched because they're saying, no, we're not going to be going to school on Friday. So, yeah, the New York City area is going to be getting uh, a pretty good size of uh, a dumping of snow, I should say. And hopefully not again in D.C. and Virginia, because I tell you, that was a real mess on Monday. Wow. Um, I still don't believe. So here's the deal. No matter where you are in the country, if you didn't hear about this. 195 goes all the way down the East Coast, a major, major corridor. And so there were about 50 miles of people in cars, trucks, every kind of automobile you can imagine that were stuck for hours upon hours upon hours. Why did this happen? Well, what happened was it was kind of a perfect storm, apparently. There was a lot of rain, and then it changed over instantly to hail, then snow. Snow so much as to accumulate two to three plus inches an hour. So the state was being ridiculed because why didn't they brime the roads? They're saying, well, they were going to, but even if they had, it would have been washed away. So then here's this massive amount of snow that's coming down. And then there was a tractor trailer accident. I think there was about five of them involved in this. So that was a huge, huge mess that created the backup. And then the plows couldn't get in. People could not back up. People were running out of gas five, ten hours into this. So if you're running out of gas and the temperatures were 15 degrees, 20 degrees, bad stuff. And it was good to see that there were some some neighborly people that were driving delivery trucks who had excess food. That uh, I remember seeing this one guy who drove a bakery truck, opened his doors, and was walking around giving people loaves of bread and asking them to share it with other neighbors. And people were taking in people from other cars who didn't have gas. And again, uh, children were involved. Uh, so it was a mess, a complete mess. So they're just saying that they uh, didn't have the time to prepare, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, the reality is you should have salt trucks ready, like trucks just sitting there. So if you need to get out, you need to get out and cover 20, 30 miles and get that system up and running pronto. But uh, hopefully that doesn't happen again. As a matter of fact, I was watching the weather this morning. Channel 4 and Al Roker was saying, yes, in 195, get ready. Like he pointed out to them, like you cannot have 
this debacle happen again. I mean, no one died miraculously. But what was interesting, on Monday, um, in this area, in the tri-state area, we had ice. We didn't get snow. And there was actually school closures in this area because of the ice. But there were spinouts and accidents like within a three-state radius. So it was just, you know, ubiquitous everywhere. So uh, Mother Nature is here. Her wrath is here. And, uh, you know, I'm looking for a good deep freeze, right, aren't you, wherever you live? Because we got to kill off the, the bugs, the mosquitoes, because I know if you don't get a really good cold deep freeze, they um, come back even stronger in the spring. Hey, it's Mark Farrell again. Thank you so much for joining the show today. Insights. Of course, if you ever missed any part of this show or any show, you can go on the Insight page on prn.fm. Hope you guys are well in the new year. Um, I always look forward to newness, but it doesn't have to be a flip of the calendar, the start of a new year for me. Because for me, every day is a new start. I mean, you know, you got 24 hours to get it right, to get it wrong, or both. But for me, I think it's kind of, I don't know, why do we need uh, a calendar to tell us that, okay, we need to eat better. Okay, we need to move more. Okay, we need to read more. We need to be uh, more dutiful at work, be a better parent, husband, spouse, whatever the case may be. I think that's a bunch of BS. Every day, um, you have a decision. We have a decision. I have a decision to be a better version of ourselves. So the whole like buy-in of like, oh, it's the new year, you can do it, you know, so don't put that much pressure on yourself. If you're trying to quit drinking, taper down your drinking, have a dry January, why would you do that? <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, eat less, eat better, exercise more. Um, I'm happy to say, I've been working on this for a while, that my home gym is finally complete. I bought my wife a treadmill years ago, a commercial one, used one from a gym. And it took like 5,000 guys to get it down into the basement, an electrician to run a separate line, everything. It was a big deal. But I'm really happy that we got it down here. And then I was the uh, uh, lucky recipient of a home gym because one of my siblings got divorced and had a great setup. So I got that baby for free <laughs> from the divorce fallout. I guess there's a silver lining in everything, right? And then I bought a spin bike last, man, was it last winter? Yes, last winter. Because as a, I had to say now, former spin instructor, because I haven't taught in two years. This is crazy since the beginning of the pandemic. In March, actually February, this next month will mark two years that I haven't taught spin class. And uh, certainly I've been biking my ass off outside. As a matter of fact, I even rode on Sunday when it was almost 50 degrees here, actually 55 degrees here in New Jersey. Uh, but that was obviously an anomaly. But uh, I bought myself a used indoor spin bike, a good one that I used to teach on, a Kaiser bike. If you're looking for a good one, K-E-I-S-E-R spin bike. A very, very well um, manufactured and will stand the test of time. Hours and hours, miles and miles, thousands of miles on that baby. And they'll still withstand that for you. So I had that. And then I was looking for dumbbells. Dumbbells are like trying to get gold bullion nowadays. Of course, they're around, but you have to pay heavily. So I was not going to pay a lot of money for dead weight. Literally, you're paying money for a dead weight. So I was waiting, waiting, waiting. I probably have been looking for a year. Yeah, you can buy them new. Again, you have to pay, let me see, for a pound. I think they're going for anywhere from 50 to 75 to 90 cents a pound. So if you want to buy dumbbells up to 50 pounds, starting at like five or eight pounds, that's going to cost you 
you know, $800, $900, et cetera, plus. And you need a dumbbell rack. Anyway, so I've been looking, found this uh, on uh, Facebook Marketplace used. So now my gym is complete. And my kids are laughing. I'm like, oh, yeah, dad's in his gym again. But it's great. I can prep for a show. I can watch news. I can listen to uh, different stations, obviously to PRN, um, and prepare and obviously get entertained and not think about uh, the grueling sets of weights and uh, miles of uphill and downhill and sprints on my bike, et cetera. So whatever you need to do to stay healthy, to get healthy, and more importantly, to blow off steam, man, because I find that, you know, Whatever your perspective is on COVID, the new variant, it's just wears on you, right? It's really grating. Mask, no mask, school, in-person, virtual. Uh, my kids, you know, Girl Scouts, virtual, in-person, parties, yada, yada, yada. It's like, you know, it's just so damn old. And... It even impacted my holidays where uh, I have a big family and we descended upon New Jersey coming from all aspects of the country. And we're all talking about uh, how we felt. Uh, did we get vaccinated, boosters, et cetera, where we're going? So long story short, um, I couldn't get together with my family, my immediate family, with my larger family because they were like, well, you went to a Broadway show. And I totally, totally get that. Because uh, people are so concerned, but we were tested, rapid tested, PCR tested, everything. Everything was negative, negative. And so uh, we spent Christmas Day alone, which is totally fine. We watched a lot of movies, you know, made some good meals, etc. Uh, no big deal. And again, I respect everyone's opinion and direction they take or not take with COVID because it's just like everything in life. Everyone's entitled to um their uh, right as they see fit. Again, we're going to meet Alex Hinton. He's a great gentleman. I recorded this interview about three months ago. Um, it's been a while uh, because of my uh, working at the other radio station a great deal and my speaking business and other projects. I uh, haven't been able to get to this interview because I had recorded so many in advance. Anyway, so we're finally getting to this. Uh, his book, It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the U.S. You'll meet him in a few minutes. And it's really timely because when we think about January 6, 2021, I remember hearing something on the news. I think I was either yeah, I was driving to a talk up in North Jersey. And uh, I remember hearing about people, uh, you know, talk. Uh, uh, Trump was about to give that talk that really was very tantamount, certainly, and riling everybody up. You know, you've heard this before. He was, you know, stoking the fire, man. I remember hearing that and going like, oh my God, what is wrong with this guy? How could he do this? I mean, he's got a job to protect the Constitution, the American people, and he's just fanning the flames. What an ass. What a bigger ass. I mean, he's going to be getting out of office any day now. And sure enough, this guy is just creating more and more problems. Well, that was not even the tip of the iceberg. I remember hearing later that day what was happening and then seeing the footage. And I was just, I think I went into a full body lock, like in major disbelief. How did you feel when you saw this? And the thing that's really, really irritating, and again, this is nothing new, but it's still hard to swallow, 
is that people on the far right, Fox personalities especially, are still saying, yeah, the footage wasn't that bad. I, I still believe people are blowing it out of proportion. Oh, it looked like any day in D.C. with a lot of tourists. Are you shitting me? Tourists pummeling the Capitol building? Breaking down doors, smashing windows, defacing property, damaging it, defecating on people's desk, chanting that we want Pence? Uh, that's a typical day in D.C.? Where the hell are you from? My Lord. So again, what will people do and say to promote and or save their own ass? Because it really looked like, okay, you know what, after you know January 6th, okay, well, this is going to be a game changer. People are totally going to realize that, okay, he's a demon. I don't care what your perspective of him before. Either it was crystallized for you that, yes, he's a piece of you-know-what, or, okay, maybe we shouldn't really align ourselves totally with Donald Trump. But no. Nope. People still are. And I do not get it. They're trying to save their ass. Okay, the politicians have to understand that people will follow them regardless of their rhetoric. Because sometimes, more often than not, people cannot think for themselves. They are sheep. And you have a moral responsibility. Where is your compass that says, uh-oh, yeah, you know what? I should leave, lead everyone down the wrong road. I don't understand how people can morally and ethically live with themselves. How can they put their head down on a pillow every night and say, yeah, I did a damn good job today. Ah, yes, another fine day of stellar leadership, decorum, professionalism, country pride. Yeah, what a way to lead the world. So anyway, you know, that ship has sailed. Uh, What do we do to get it back? I have no idea. Um, Due to the experts, uh, yeah, I've heard some, you know, fairly plausible ways, but Democrats really need to pave the way uh, in the far left about uh, getting uh, this country uh, more realistically aligned with, you know, democracy is still at risk, at large. It certainly is. So let's get to this great interview because I want you to meet Alex Hinton. Great talk, great conversation. And it's uh, pivotal um, to hear about racism, genocide, how prevalent it is in the United States. And again, noted that this was recorded uh, two to three months ago. So, Professor Hinton, our timing couldn't be any better. Of course, your book is just pivotally timed, but just surfacing, it's still hard to believe that President Trump's apparent biggest regret during his presidency was not sending in troops during the George Floyd's protest. Does that sum him up in one sentence? Uh, That sums it up. uh, And I think, you know, with the motif of it can happen here, that goes back to the Sinclair Lewis uh, novel, uh, you know, I think that's still with us very much. And so, uh, you know, my project is very much meant to try and uh, dispel this myth. And uh, it's really remarkable that it continues even after Lafayette Square, after the Capitol insurrection. It goes on and on. As a professor um, wearing multiple hats, written many books, had you ever thought the country would be in such a position prior to Trump assuming the presidency? 
You know, that's, that's a great question. Um, and to be honest, I have to say, you know, I'd have to say no, I certainly knew that the US, uh, you know, historically, and in recent history, uh, had committed war crimes, uh, and potentially crimes against humanity, including, uh, you know, from my research on the Cambodian genocide, I'm an anthropologist, uh, and I've done extensive research on the genocide there and written about it. Um, and so, you know, you have the carpet bombing of Cambodia is one piece of the puzzle. So I was very aware of that. I was very aware of the long history of the U.S. Uh, reaching back to settler colonialism uh, and the genocide committed against some Native American groups, forced relocations, uh, very aware of enslavement, uh, Japanese internment, so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, I, I've studied countries around the world where genocide and mass violence have taken place. And usually there are a set of factors that are operative um, where sort of buffers are eroded, for example. And I thought our, I've always argued that our democracy is strong. And uh, I have to say, I was a bit naive as well. And I, you know, I, I say that perhaps not as naive as many people who don't want to acknowledge the past and aren't aware of uh, you know, things that have happened in very recent history. Um, but yeah, it, uh, you know, I was surprised how quickly things could go downhill. Mm. And uh, appropriately named your book, It Can Happen Here, and it has happened here. And uh, how did white power views uh, become more commonplace? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And there's sort of a, <clears throat> a long answer to that and a short answer. And the I long want them both. <laughs> All right. well, the, well, the long answer, uh, you know, goes back to the founding of the country. Right, with mm. settler colonialism moving forward uh, and implementation um, of a system of systemic white supremacy uh, that was put in place in the late 1600s into the early 1700s uh, to legitimate uh, chattel slavery. Um, and so that system was in place more or less in variations throughout the country, uh, of course, until the Civil War uh, at that point. So it got shaken up to some degree, but Jim Crow was very much with us. Um, and it continued in a new form. And then we got to the civil rights movement. Uh, and what took place then, uh, and again, there are a lot of different groups who so are speaking in a broad brush here uh, with that small caveat, but there really was a shift where previously a lot of white power uh, had been aimed at uh, upholding through paramilitary action, for example, uh, the system of white supremacy. But after the civil rights movement, a lot of the language and uh, ways of talking about it and thinking about it shifted. Uh, and as opposed to being uh, geared to uphold a system of white supremacy, even as it continued in different forms afterwards, uh, the language at least, and the way it was conceptualized by many groups uh, was in terms of grievance and victimization. Uh, so it became as opposed to upholding this order um, to, you know, we're under attack by black and brown people, uh, you know, white majority is going to disappear, uh, so on and so forth. And it also dovetailed, there are a lot of different sort of strands that come together, uh, globalization, the global white power movement. So there are conversations that are taking place. Um, and even, you know, since I first began the project into the present, uh, things like uh, the Great Replacement. Uh, idea that not many people knew about, uh, you know, now a lot of people know about it. I'll tell you the truth, nobody was talking about structural racism, or very few people were talking about structural racism. Now it's commonplace to talk about it. Um, so I was really struck more broadly by how the conversations have shifted and what was sort of pushed off to the side is now entered mainstream 
discourse, but to sort of go back uh, to the short answer, right? So that was sort of the long answer. Mm -hmm. We have the transformation. Uh, these groups come together. Uh, they begin to coalesce, especially in the 1970s. Uh, the idea of white genocide uh, is sort of put forward and crystallized in the 70s, 80s, into the 90s, uh, and that dovetails with replacement discourses. Um, and so we really reach, and then we, oh, and then the other factor is social media. Uh, Huge. Yeah, white power actors were always uh, at the forefront of using uh, the internet uh, and different message boards, which would surprise a lot of people because of stereotypes about white power actors um, who always think they're sort of rural mm -hmm. uh, on the country, not very intelligent. Mm -hmm. So on runs the, the gamut. Yeah, there you go. Uh, a lot of people who are cutting edge in terms of using these platforms, and they still are. And so we, we really had this moment where everything came together and something that had been with us for a long time uh, exploded at this moment. And part of that moment was the uh, presidency of uh, Donald Trump, who very much directly, uh, as to some extent, had many other politicians in the past, people using the Southern strategy, for example, uh, different themes have been invoked, but he really took uh, white nationalism as a form of speech uh, using uh, racist dog whistles. He hit the accelerator in a way we'd never seen before, and he seemed completely unconcerned about democratic structures that even those politicians in the past who had played on the Southern strategy, uh, so on and so forth, they had been concerned, you know, they had respected ultimately the democratic system. And I think what's we found out and we talked about during the Trump presidency, but has become even more clear as we move out of it uh, into an uncertain future, uh, is that he has very little respect for the democratic system and mainly wants to, uh, you know, be, be at the, uh, you know, be at the head of the government in whatever way it is. Many great points right there. Thank you. Um, in terms of not being uh, an embracer of the democratic system, apparently a lot of the top generals of the military coming forward saying that they got together and talked about how we can prevent President Trump, former President Trump, from coming unglued and what they would do steps to, you know, because obviously they didn't agree with his unhinged actions. And uh, thankfully, uh, things didn't evolve into a worse manner. But I mean, that's what we were dealing with. A lot of great points I want to get to. Um, first and foremost, with his perspective, President Trump, were you surprised about how candid he was and, and not more so in a discreet fashion in terms of how he executed his perception and uh, his white supremacy perspective? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. Um, and you also brought up a great point about the generals. And it's, uh, you know, sort of first go back to that for a moment. Uh, it's remarkable that if anything like that had happened before, people would have been you know, horrified, up in arms. But so many things like that happened during his administration that it became commonplace. And so what was outrageous, shocking, uh, and alarming, right, if you had gone back five, six years ago, now just seems, you know, commonplace, regular, every day. And that's really bad. It is. Right? We should be shocked by it, mm -hmm. outraged. Uh, and, uh, you know, Democrats, Republicans alike, it's uh, anyways, and a lot are many Republicans are, you know, there, there's significant number, but we sort of come back, uh, you know, the sort of dovetails with the question you just asked. Um, 
And the mainstreaming of those views has been taking place over a long time, not just, it wasn't just him, though he had said he had been playing on white nationalist themes going back for many, many years, and he really ramped them up in 2015 into 2016 and, and never stopped after that point, and he continues to do so today. But at the same time, uh, we've had, uh, I think, in a lot of the news media, there's been this move to opinion, right, uh, the sort of opinion shows uh, being at the forefront. So uh, even now, you know, Fox News was at the forefront of this in many ways, uh, and you have your evening opinion uh, host. But now uh, MSNBC and CNN are actually sort of doing the same thing. Uh, they've moved to compete. And it's a really it's a, an alarming trend, I think, because this much of it plays on sensationalistic themes. But uh, unfortunately, what happened with Fox, uh, in part because uh, of their viewership and also grabbing, getting numbers and in an increasingly difficult media. Mm, huge numbers. Huge numbers. I think it's five million, uh, you know, for some of the evening shows. Um, but uh, they very much directly tapped into white nationalist themes. So it wasn't just that, you know, then President Trump was saying these things, but is that they had an echo chamber and the echo chamber most prominently was on Fox News. And he, of course, would come on uh, Fox and Friends and different shows and talk. And so there was this synergy that was going. And we're not even talking about the far right media ecosystem where it was even being pronounced on a stronger level. Mm. Having said that, you know, I should note going back to our initial discussion of the long history of systemic white power in the US, um, that again, there's always been a, a large current of white nationalism, if you will, uh, that exists. And it's not just, you know, 10 or 15 people, uh, you know, living in the South in the countryside, which is the stereotype, it's all over the country and the numbers of people who may not <clears throat> advocate the most extreme forms, though there are many who do, of white nationalism, but who white nationalist ideology resonates with. Uh, you know, we're talking about not just, you know, hundreds, we're not talking about thousands, we're not talking about hundreds of thousands, we're not even just talking about millions, we're talking about tens of millions of people in the US. And that also is very, very alarming. Immensely so. Let's talk about vernacular. I think vernacular plays such a vital role, especially with media uh, dovetailing on what we just mentioned. And I believe also, uh, going back to the Fox statement, I believe 1000% uh, correct in what you said. And also it was interesting to see once in a while when one of the Fox hosts, I don't know their names off the top of my head, would go against the philosophy of what Trump was standing for. And they would get more attention so it worked for them when they agreed with Trump and when they disagreed with Trump, because then Trump would even talk about Fox. Yeah, that's right. So it was a win-win across the board for them. Yeah. And they, but they would do that infrequently. Yeah. Infrequently. Yeah. Infrequently. So I'm not sure if it was plotted or not, but I wouldn't be surprised. But vernacular, I think that plays such a crucial role in our country because it, it is the tone, the language, and that um, creates a picture for people. Uh, discuss that, Professor. Yeah, you know, I, I think this ties as well into larger discussions we're having now about the use of language in general. Um, and we've always had, and this, you know, I'm sort of answering your question in a slightly different direction, but linked to this long history of white power, as well as sort of geopolitics in the country, racist dog whistles, ways of speaking, we've long had this tension 
between acceptable forms of speech. And that's both on the right and the left. But the way it got picked up, one of the main ways was in terms of talking about political correctness. Uh, and if you ask almost anyone, is it, you know, do we, you know, what do you think about political correctness? People on the left and right, everyone says, oh, I don't know, I don't like political correctness because it goes against the grain of free speech in the US. Uh, but it's a, it's a sort of uh, caricature of what's actually going on. And now that's been taken up with discourses of cancel culture uh, and sort of moving along. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's like the new bugaboo, if you will. Um, but linked to that, and part of the reason I think that's sort of at the forefront um, is that people are thinking more about language. Some people are being called, uh, you know, held to account for language. And so that emerging out of the hopefully Trump era, um, you know, we may be at a place where we're thinking more deeply about race. We're thinking more deeply about the vernaculars, if you will. Uh, and we're thinking more deeply about the structures and lands we live in. Uh, so there may be, for many people, a form of thinking, and again, it goes back to the comment about structural racism. Mm -hmm. How many people knew what structural racism was? I mean, the debates about critical race theory, right? I mean, again, we have this terminology that's entered the mainstream. The problem is that on the right, it's caricatured uh, in this way. And again, I should say on the left, there's caricaturing that goes on as well. Um, so we have language, if you will, people thinking more deeply. We have caricatures that are going on in these sort of culture wars. But I think ultimately uh, the country's, you know, having hopefully weathered the storm, uh, you know, five years from now, seven years, we'll be in a much better place. And I say that because of the election that's going to come up in four years, and we have to get through that first. Well, uh, let me uh, pause for a second to reset and tell everybody who you are. Alex Hinton is my guest. He's the author of It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the U.S. Alex is a professor of anthropology, founder and director of the Center for the Study of Genocide and Human Rights and UNESCO. Did I get that right? Uh, yeah, UNESCO chair. UNESCO of chair of genocide prevention at Rutgers University. Rutgers University a invaluable institution uh, located not too far from me in New Jersey and from the PRN studios in New York City. Um, I wanted to ask you about that. It's going to be so interesting about seven to 10 years from now where we sit because of the, the wake of Trump. And of course, he's still talking about uh, more in the last couple of days, uh, the recording of this interview, his presidency uh, run number two. And then also um, where we stand perspective-wise as a racist, uh, have we evolved? Did we become more sensible and have more decency? And obviously in the wake of the pandemic, because I think these are so interestingly woven together because I would have thought we'd become a gentler, kinder nation in the past 18 months, but obviously things are resuming a little bit more of a normal society uh, besides the variants and everything, um, but no. Um, so if we could flash forward as a professor, as someone who studied um, the human actions and obviously from uh, thousands of years ago, do you think we will evolve a great deal from this? Yeah, you know, that, that story is yet to be written. We're writing it. All <laughs> we are. Week, literally, so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, we'll see. I guess hoping uh, is one thing and uh, yeah, reality is another. I think I tend to be, uh, you know, optimistic mm. in general about these things. Um, I mean, you can look back at the last four years and you, as you mentioned before, the generals who were 
uh, prepared, if necessary, to sort of hold the hold the fort of democracy against Trump when he wanted to bring troops in. You know, as a small caveat, you know, we think about the Capitol insurrection; it's absolutely horrible. But if you think about what could have happened both during the Capitol insurrection, if there had been mass casualties, what would have happened in the streets of the U.S. across the country? That's a scenario that's highly alarming and could have catalyzed um, different forms of atrocity crimes and mass violence. Uh, it could have been really bad news. Uh, the other thing is, you know, so Can I interrupt you for a second there, Professor. Yeah. I think, yes, very much so, in both pro and con against what took place. I think yeah. really, and then of course, Trump would have unleashed the military. Yeah, well, that's the thing. And, you know, if he hadn't been banned from Twitter, you know, I'm a, I talk to my European colleagues and I'm such a strong advocate of free speech in the mm. US. Uh, but, you know, this is a case where I think it was perfectly legitimate uh, to ban him from Twitter, um, all things Agreed. considered. And, uh, you know, if they hadn't done that, uh, I think we could have been really hot water at that point. Whole another situation. Your book may have a different title. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, <laughs> the title is, you know, effectively it has happened here. It can happen here again. Uh, and we've got to really step up to the plate and take steps to make sure it doesn't happen uh, because it's an ever-present possibility. And the Trump administration really sent the message uh, to us, the sort of reality, it can happen here. Sinclair Lewis, uh, as we discussed, saw this in the 1930s. Um, as Hitler was rising to power, there were silver shirts, which were the analog of brown shirts, uh, you know, 10, 20,000 strong. Uh, there was a big white power uh, neo-Nazi or Nazi rally, I should say, held at Madison Square Garden. Uh, you know, it's anyways. So he, he started off with the what people were saying, it can't happen here. And this, you know, echoes his saying, you know, we've got to just confront this. And I maybe, well, anyways, I, you know, in terms of, you know, what the book aims towards it's a lot of it's set in the classroom and it's written in narrative form with dialogue uh, you know to sort of to show how uh, in the classroom these issues were being discussed right and how it impacted my students many of whom were black and brown um, but there's sort of two things two myths that the book really tries to, to strike at um, the first is what we might uh, call the not us motif uh, this idea, and when you raise that with your very first question, that, you know, things like this don't happen in the U.S. The U.S. has an exceptional position, and, and, and grant me, the country has so many great things about it, right? I mean, U.S. democracy, compared to most other systems in the world, is amazing, mm -hmm. almost a miracle. It's an incredible thing. It's, it's very makes, impressive. Yeah, which makes it so terrifying about what happened so quickly in four years, and to be frank, what's going on now? Um you know, what continues to happen. But the sort of myth of exceptionalism really needs to be, uh, you know, seen for what it is and to accept, uh, you know, and I give Biden credit, President Biden credit for this. He says, look, tons of great things about this country, but like all countries, there's some bad stuff and we have to face up to it. It's like, you know, going into therapy, if you will, you can't just talk about cheerful things. You got to deal with the bad stuff too. And if you want to move forward in a better way, and what's so hard about that? So then we get into the critical race theory stuff, which is just, it's a, such a simplistic way of looking at what's uh, the issue of race. And it diverts us from the sort of reckoning with the past that we need to, to, to have. Um, so the not us is one myth. 
right? We got to say, yeah, it is part of us and they're great things, but they're also some bad things. We got to confront that. The other motif, uh, the other myth uh, is the myth of not me. And this is the one where, you know, I've brought it up a few times indirectly. That's where, you know, Charlottesville, look on the streets of Charlottesville. There are a bunch of freak neo-Nazis, uh, you know, KKK. It's always sort of this caricature of the country bumpkin. Uh, and it's simply, it's completely false. And the people are dismissed uh, as sort of backwards, as haters, as racist, as, uh, you know, psychos, what have you. But the fact of the matter is, most of them are not. And we don't, we, by calling people racist, we divert attention from looking at structures of racism, at the history of racism. So we individualize uh, and sort of uh, draw on what's sometimes called the bad apples idea, that there are a couple of bad apples in the bin and we got to just get rid of those as opposed to thinking, how is this linked more broadly uh, to society, to history? Um, to the structures uh, and landscapes through which we move. Uh, and so this sort of, it's not me, it's the bad apples. That's the other uh, sort of myth that the book really tries to take on uh, is sort of just to hit those two uh, myths in order to, again, present the case as the title says, it can happen here. This mm. is part of our history. And it's a daunting task. And I think you do a great job of it. And talking about the how ubiquitous uh, racism is and uh, its prevalence. I remember about 25 years ago hearing about a KKK located outside Princeton, New Jersey, not yeah. too far from Rutgers and to where are the PRN studios in New York City. So imagine, you know, you think about the rural part of the world. But again, to your point, it is everywhere. Oh, that's, and thank you for bringing up that point. Absolutely. So New Jersey, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. New Jersey. KKK yeah. hey, has a long history here. Uh, all sorts of different white power groups are active. Um, they're still active. Uh, it's anyways, though, so uh, just as a point of illustration, if there's a group called the uh, New Jersey European Heritage Association. It's based, as you said, just outside of Princeton. Uh, they were present at Charlottesville, the first Charlottesville. They were present at Unite the Right Two in Washington, D.C. Uh, they go and they, they put up white power stickers all over the state. Um, you know, they're front and center and they very much espouse white genocide views uh, and have this in their paraphernalia. It's just one amongst many groups. Um, and wherever you're, wherever you are in the country, I've got news for you. There, there are white power groups mm -hmm. living nearby. Absolutely. America, in terms of being a moral leader, um, their perspective on that um, as a professor, as an American, and also someone who mentioned before a few minutes ago that you have uh, obviously uh, colleagues and or industry um, colleagues um, in Europe. What is the perspective of America being a moral leader? Do we still have that coveted title? Yeah, you know, the, the thing is, I think, moving forward, uh, you know, the U.S. has a long history, and this goes back to, this is the bit of truth that the myth of uh, exceptionalism, for all its flaws, gets at the U.S. has done some great things. Jimmy Carter uh, sort of revamped things and put human rights at the forefront of U.S. foreign policy. That was a big movement. Uh, the U.S. engaged with this growing international human rights regime uh, that's really remarkable, that's been established. Uh, people uh, aren't aware, most people aren't aware of the incredible number of institutions that now exist to uphold human rights around the world. And the U.S. has been uh, through the use of aid. And again, real politics, right? 
it's always operative. Strategic interest absolutely is informing it. Uh, but more than most countries, in part because of its wealth, the US has been able to uh, promote human rights and democracy in many ways. And so a lot of people and a lot of us were really stunned by what happened. But, you know, we've got Biden now, uh, and President Biden is re-engaging with the international community. I think he has also taken a lead with, um, in terms of COVID, with helping countries in terms of vaccines, vaccinations. So there's a lot of potential, and already you've seen that, you know, perceptions- Cybersecurity, big one now. Oh, uh, sorry, well, that's a whole nother <laughs> discussion. Um, yeah, cybersecurity. But anyway, so I, I think that the U.S. can, you know, we shouldn't think of- moral leadership in terms of exceptionalism, but as an obligation, uh, you know, more broadly to support democracy where it is, but not to create democracies, which is- And also how we react, Professor, because uh, for example, with cybersecurity, I was reading about what can we do when we read about other countries? I believe China was just, uh, was just discovered that they were involved as one of the recent hackings. And one of the things that uh, was, I guess, put on the table was, well, we can hack back. Well, it's not that simple because what if we do something inadvertently because it's not always clear cut? And then the reality is, well, how are other nations going to perceive our actions and how would they react to us? So, I mean, it's just a you know, domino effect. But again, going back to the moral compass and our perspective as uh, being a decent world and nation, it's very interesting about all the different facets and moving parts that one has to consider. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So the moral compass idea from the book, uh, you know, put that aside for one second, just in terms of cyber, mm. uh, you know, that's something where there needs to be a lot of investment in terms of enhancing and making cyber more robust, um, you know, to begin to do it. And I think probably the U.S. is already doing things that don't get publicized uh, in response. Uh, so the, I'm you know, fine with that. Yeah, and it's it's so it's going on. We're not totally aware of it, but it's a massive problem. Uh, and uh, anyways, but uh, as I said, that's uh, directly related. But uh, really, we could I think spend another half hour, forty five minutes just discussing that issue alone. Um, you know, the idea of moral compass from the book that you mentioned, which sort of you know, the book is a uh, sort of history in a way you can think out of a grounded history of the Trump administration and the perils uh, of what took place. Uh, and by grounded, I mean, what's going on in classrooms, uh, you know, as opposed to a history that's written just in the White House. And so I wrote it as a sort of history on the ground of what took place and the dangers and sort of the lessons that we learned. And that motif of lessons runs throughout the book. Uh, and at the end, I come back and after sort of showing how we came to the brink, um, you know, of atrocity crimes in the U.S. of mass violence, you know, what can we do to make sure it doesn't happen? And as part of that, uh, and here the book begins with the snake, which is a parable that immigration parable that uh, Trump told on the uh, campaign trail. I am with the bird, which is Toni Morrison, which promotes mm -hmm. dialogue and multivocality. Um, but sort of the moral compass comes down to sort of four different prongs, right? Like moral compass, right? Four different directions. We need to be able to look back. We need to be able to understand history to understand how we got to this point. We need to be able to look around. We need to be able to understand where we're standing now and what the context is. We need to be able to look at others and understand their perspectives, even if those perspectives seem completely diametrically opposed to our own. And I can't tell you the number of times people have asked me, I have relatives 
uh, you know, for example, who support Trump, I can't talk to them. What can I do? And the first thing is you have to look at and like have discussions and try and understand why they think the way that they do. And then as opposed to arguing with them, try and find points of common ground. Mm -hmm. You don't begin with division. You begin with points of common ground and you build out from there. So that's, that's a little aside. So, you know, look at, understand. No, I, I find that fascinating because I've been in that uh, point before. And just a, uh, a, a sidebar to that, I like to say that I did that recently. And I said to someone, and this person was saying, we don't like anything he stands for, but they do like certainly the immigration policy and some of the financial windfalls that they feel that he has brought to the country. But I said to them, okay, putting that aside, you have two granddaughters, right? And this person said, yes. I said, how would you like if your uh, granddaughters are spoken to by a gentleman or a woman in the fashion that he speaks to women and or has and has been publicly um, recorded and shared? Yeah, so I got somebody thinking. Yeah. And, uh, you know, actually global warming, climate change is another point where, you know, exactly. people, I mean, it's their know, world. Yeah. Well, so some white evangelical Christian groups who might support Trump, right? Some of them are very pro environment. And it's a ground where you can begin to have a conversation. Mm. About convergence. Good point. Um, so to finish, though, just very briefly, yes. the looking back, looking at, looking around looking beneath, trying to understand what's going on, to think critically about a situation, all of that lays the groundwork to look ahead and move forward. And what is a moral compass, right? It's a way to get our, to calibrate and figure out the best path forward. Uh, and so the book talks about moral compass and in a way the whole book is written with the different chapters uh, about moral compass at this present mo moment. Uh, and it sort of looks ahead, even though, you know, it finishes uh, with the preface actually finishes with the capital insurrection, uh, but it's very much, uh, you know, looks forward to the things that we're talking about now. Um, and unfortunately, uh, it, the book is all the more relevant to things that are going on now. And I say, unfortunately, because I was hoping that we'd move forward in a different sort of way, but no, the danger is very much with us and continues to be. Mm, and very real. Uh, we're almost out of time, Alex Hinton. But lastly, uh, we we're talking about taking the temperature of the country and your colleagues in Europe. Um, what is the perspective of the youth that you're teaching at Rutgers University as a professor? Are they very engaged in this? I imagine they're uh, most likely, I imagine since they're looking to further their education, that we have a very in tune uh, demographic where you are right now, but give me some feedback on that, please. Yeah, you know, so this gets into the uh, sort of the pedagogy that I use. Mm -hmm. uh, so every classroom is different, right? Um, sure. my, my classroom's critical thinking is at the heart of it. And that's what I push. That's what the tool I want them to come out with. So I actually begin all of my discussions about these political issues when they come up, um, including the Charlottesville teaching that I taught by saying, look, I don't want to know your political opinions. You don't want to know my political opinions. What we can do together and what we need to do is analyze the situation. And then you go and you form your opinions afterwards on your own. But if we just talk about opinions, we're just going to have arguments. And also some people's voices will be shut down and they'll be pushed out. Um, and so that really is a grounding. That's worked very well because then you focus on understanding perspective. So it goes back to looking at, looking around, right? Moral compass, looking beneath. That's all part of critical thinking. Uh, you know, so long time I've used that. I continue to use it and I very much use that uh, during the Trump administration. But what was, you know, it was really hard because as I mentioned before, most of my students are black and brown, people of color, and it, uh, 
you know, this, it was a reality in one sense that they've been, they live with every day long before the Trump administration of sort of and long after sure. And long after. So very familiar. And it, it wasn't shocking in some ways to them. And, uh, you know, and so that was also sort of a small lesson, but uh, they very much were like, oh yeah, it can happen here. You know, if you will, Good. because we experience it all the time. Yeah, sure. But the main thing is to learn to think critically. And that, uh, again, the debates about critical race theory divert us from the good work that's going on in classrooms across the country where, you know, people are focusing on critical thinking. Alex Hinton, have you dog-eared that section, that uh, chapter on uh, moral compass and sent a copy to Mara Largo? Yeah, right. Express mail. <laughs> That's on your to-do uh, list. Okay. Trump mail is not working well at the moment. So. No, absolutely. Yes, yes. Another good point you bring up. Uh, lastly, uh, we're out of time here. Um, as a, an American citizen, as listeners for the Progressive Radio Network, what can we do to change the dialogue, vernacular, perspectives, et cetera? I know it's a big macro question. Yeah, it's a macro question. And there, you know, in one chapter of the book, how can it be prevented, uh, sort of goes into a number of different things that can take place. But, you know, on a sort of, we just spoke about one thing, which is being willing to have a conversation, to not caricature other people as being certain types of, you know, racist, what have you, but to think I'm speaking to another human being, someone who has views that I need to understand in order to begin to talk and have dialogue. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, Biden, President Biden's really the man of the moment because he's been doing things like that a long time. He's not perfect by any means, but he's always been someone who engaged in dialogue across the aisle. And so he sort of models maybe for all of us yeah. what we need to do. Let's have, let's talk, go find someone. Uh, if you're a progressive, if you're on the left, don't just say, oh, it's a racist Trump supporter. Go talk to someone, understand their views, find points of dialogue where you can have a conversation and maybe as well, Again, this goes back to the not me, you'll learn something about yourself and maybe you'll rethink things about yourself. I mean, none of us are perfect. All of us need to move forward. We all have shadow sides. That's what dialogue's all about. You become a better person. Uh, and, you know, anyways, and so that's on an individual level, on a societal level, I think uh, having this broader reckoning, supporting movements to have a reckoning is very important. Uh, in academia, sometimes we talk about transitional justice, but it's the idea of, you know, reparations, but a truth commission, uh, modalities like that, that we always support in other countries, going back to, you know, the human rights issue you raised before, supporting human rights across the, the globe. We can have those mechanisms in the U.S. and we need them. Uh, and those also are being spoken about in a way that's shocking to me. Uh, you know, the idea of reparations was barely talked about four or five years ago. Uh, the idea of truth commission, and they're taking, they're actually taking place across the country on the local level. There are all these new initiatives. I actually wrote an a op-ed uh, in the journal Sapiens calling for a truth commission to look at white supremacy and its legacies that would go all the way back to 1492 and wow. sort of this history. Um, but it said that we need to support local initiatives. I think we all know top-down government has some strengths, but it also has some weaknesses. You got to empower communities on the grassroots to take things up and do it in their own creative ways. I think that's very important. So again, besides, uh, you know, on the grassroots, if you want to do something, how about starting a grassroots movement to sort of, you know, have some sort of truth commission to look at this past, understand it. We all get together, uh, you know, mm -hmm. we're going to move through the sky's limit. Never underestimate the power and reach of a grassroots movement, especially, especially on social media. Yeah, absolutely. 
Professor, Absolutely. thank you for uh, penning a most value book and all the success to you. And uh, thank you for leading America's future as well and having uh, critical dialogue, critical thinking, and uh, most importantly, again, penning your book, It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the U.S. It must yeah. feel good to have that out in the world. Yeah, it does. It, uh, and it certainly is relevant. As I, I said before, it continues to be um so you know i'm gonna continue to try and get the word out and i appreciate you giving me the opportunity to come on and talk about these issues and thank you for your show and for raising these sorts of issues on it um i really appreciate it yes great perspective there from alex hinton and if you missed a portion of this interview you can go on the prn.fm website and on the insight page you'll be able to see the uh, full uh, broadcast of this interview, including Alex Hinton's interview. It's Mark Farrell on the Progressive Radio Network. Good Thursday to you. Hope you're having a good day no matter where you are. Yes, anniversary of the insurrection. Chicago schools, they cannot get enough staff, teachers to actually do their job. Um, so this is the day number two that the schools are closed. What's going to happen there? Man, who knows? Uh, I think the superintendent, is really being kind of lax from what I've heard and seen that they are not, uh, maybe they just surely don't have enough manpower, but the union and the superintendent needs to uh, hash this out because this can't go on. I totally understand that every district, most districts across the country are in trouble because of COVID uh, mandates, uh, vaccine mandates, Manpower, you can't get substitutes. Kids are sometimes taking two periods of gym class, which is not a bad thing because of the obesity rate in America, because they don't have teachers for English or Spanish or whatever the class may be, subject-wise. So um, it, it is a chaotic mess. In our county, in Monmouth County, where I reside, um, it's very Republican, very anti-mask, very anti-a lot of things. Um, there still are a lot of issues um, kids, I'd say classes are probably about 60, 70 percent attendance wise. The buses are, you know, definitely down a great deal, according to my kids. Um, so it said, oh, by the way, I could just talk to you about school buses. This is really, really, really bothersome. Can you believe? And let me ask you this rather where you live. Do you see people passing school buses with their yellow lights flashing? I've been seeing so much of this in the past, well, since September started. I don't know whether it's people becoming lackadaisical, complacent, but yes, I know sometimes when a bus is moving and their light's on, you're like, well, stop, stop here. Do I go? Where's the bus stopping? It's kind of like a guessing game. But when that bus is stopped and those lights are flashing, people, I saw this this morning, two cars went past my son's school bus. I laid on the horn. I'm parked perpendicularly to that. I laid on the horn and if I'm out there, I'll yell because, you know, my son is thankfully on the curbside, but there is a double yellow line on this street. And a lot of times kids cross the bus to go on the far side of the road and there's cars passing when the bus has their yellow lights on. Now, I know this is a hefty fine, a major fine, major points as well, but I don't understand people. There is a school bus stopped. People boarding or deboarding, and they're passing it. Oh, my God, that gets me just so riled up. I mean, how would they feel if they struck somebody? 
So I, I spoke to my wife this morning. I think I'm going to call our local police department because this is bad. I'm not so worried about my kid. I'm there. He's a smart kid. She's a smart kid. Um, they look. They're smart. They don't have to cross the far side of the road. But there are a hell of a lot of kids in this country that live on dangerous roads, even if it's not dangerous. Uh, the bus driver is obviously responsible for the safety, and they're always looking out. And this one bus driver that drives my daughter's bus, she lays on a horn. Um, and I know some cameras are, buses are equipped with cameras, but it depends on where the car is passed and what the angle is, and there's a lot of different uh, layers to it to find out whether they can actually take that footage to the police department. But please know, if you do not know or forgot, that those lights go on, man, you got to stop. Once, especially once that school bus is stopped. I mean, God forbid uh, we lose a child to something so uh, simple as not stopping for a bus with their lights on. So uh, what's your New Year's resolution like? Yeah, no, no, I, I don't have any. <laughs> um, actually, I do have one every year. What was it for the last two years? Oh, I was going to learn how to whistle. Maybe I should look that up on YouTube. Probably can't too, be too hard to learn, right? Yeah, you know, uh, again, I'm not a huge... New Year's um, resolution person, because every day for me, I think is a new day. Um, and uh, I have some business goals I want to make and surpass this year uh, monetarily. I want to speak to uh, more corporations, um, touch the lives of more people on stage, off stage. As a matter of fact, I had two talks canceled yesterday that uh, are COVID-related. Uh, because they said they just can't risk it, so they may be virtual. One may be virtual, and the other one may be rescheduled. But um, So in terms of speaking, my motivational talks, um, things were getting better, but now they're starting to flatten out and or descend, declined. So that is a bummer. I hope the business that you are in is not suffering. And, um, you know, it's funny because, as I mentioned before, I teach spin, and a, a new facility, well, it's new to me, called me up the other day and said, hey, we heard you're a great spin instructor. Would you like to come and teach at our facility? And I said, sure, I'll come check it out. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking like, well, this is a maybe a week, week and a half before Christmas. I'm thinking like maybe not a good idea, Mark, because of the rising Omicron variant. So I'm like, you know, I, I, I'm a gym rat. I love to check out gyms. So I'm like, yeah, let me come check it out. I checked it out. I walked in the door and never before... Have I ever felt like this? I was like, ew. Like the ick factor was major. Major because, you know, we don't go into spaces. Now, I can't say you don't. I don't know you. Um, I'd like to know you. <laughs> but nowadays, I mean, I haven't been to a gym um, in two years, almost two years. And when I walked into this gym, it was about three-quarter-ish capacity. And there were people just running, sweating, lifting, pushing sleds. And all I could think about in my mind was like, oh, man, I don't miss this. Because, well, first of all, it wasn't a dirty gym, but it wasn't like a, a, you know, like a Spartan gym. Like everything was close together. The machines are close together. The people were close together. Minimal mask being worn. And I'm just like, you know what? This just looks like a breeding ground for everything <laughs> <laughs> that we know about and don't know about. I'm going to check out the spin room and then get my ass out of here. And then I politely decline the position for now because I, you know, was especially with a, I just told you that my home gym is all set, but I am not ready to go back to a full operational gym. I mean, I do this as a hobby, as a fun job to stay fit, uh, certainly stay fit and to 
you know, uh, keep my chops in front of speaking to people several days a week. If I have a slow week um, in terms of presentation wise, motivational talks. But man, there's no way I need to do it uh, for that level. Certainly not for the money and certainly not for the risk factor. But um, I'm looking forward to uh, <laughs> a much better 22, man. I hope you are as well. No matter uh, what you do for a living, maybe you're retired, maybe you're in um, whatever field that you're in. If you're in healthcare, if you're a first responder, I can't thank you enough for what you do, for what you've done, and for what you will do for putting your life on the line, uh, jeopardy health-wise, safety-wise. It's all um, encompassing. I mean, there's nothing that people in your field um, don't have to think about. Uh, and sometimes you don't think about it because it's second nature to be the first line of defense uh, to come to someone's rescue and aid. And um, I, I thank you for that. Um, I think um, if I were to do it all over again, uh, that's one of the things I would consider. First responder, uh, doctor, uh, nurse, um, uh, anyone in that health field. EMS is just a hero, has always been a hero in my house. My mother is an RN, and um, I just think people who um, come to the aid of people in life is a good thing. And maybe that's where I get it from because I love uh, connecting with people. More importantly, positively impacting lives. As a matter of fact, uh, we're running out of time, but in closing, uh, I was speaking to someone the other day in a store, and this person owned the store. And then she uh, said to me, oh, what do you do? It's a printing store. And I told her. And she said, oh, tell me more about this. This is fascinating. I said, yes, I speak to uh, corporations. I speak to schools about overcoming adversity, resiliency, mental health, drugs, alcohol, and a bevy of topics that are all from my varied life experience. And she said, oh, do, do you uh, speak to people one-on-one -on -one privately? I said, yeah, I, I do that as well. I kind of coach and mentor. So she, uh, she started to be very quiet. And look, now, again, I'm visually impaired. So I couldn't tell that she was starting to cry. Then I saw her shoulders starting to go up and down. And I'm like, oh, she's having a moment. I kind of gave her a hug said, it's okay. Take your time. I'm here. So basically she wanted to tell me that her son in college, who's a sophomore in college, was having a lot of trouble with anxiety. His grades were suffering, et cetera, et cetera. Would you consider? I said, yes. Be happy to talk with him. So I spent 90 minutes talking with him about a week later. And um, I was very impressed with this young man. I think he has a lot going for him. And I think he can easily overcome this. But it, it, it comes down to, like, uh, for anyone in life, you have to manage your life. When one thing gets out of control or we are remiss about tending to something in our life, some things usually, other things, rather, yeah, typically suffer. And that was the case here. But my, uh, my point is that um, impacting lives, I think it's in my DNA. Uh, when my brother left off a building, which will be 30 years 30 years, yeah, 30 years, this February 24th. I started to go to meetings at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And not long after that did I get involved. And here I am still years and years later, decades later, still hosting talks for them and facilitating groups. As a matter of fact, I just got emailed the other day about uh, two walks that they're having that, that they want me to host in the springtime at two colleges in New Jersey. And in the fall, this past fall, I did about 10 different walks that I hosted. And um, I bring knowledge, I bring information, I bring positivity, and I share my experiences that um, you know, people think, people who, I think the, the former stereotype, people who were depressed and miserable or have anxiety are old, 
their shut-ins, et cetera. No, that's not the case. Chances are the person right next to you at your job or the store you just left right now. So uh, we have to, you know, be compassionate, have empathy for these people. And anyway, that leaves us here. Thank you so much to my guest, Mr. Hinton. He was amazing, Alex Hinton. You can check him out. Google him, A-L-E-X, Alex Hinton, H-I-N-T-O-N. His book is It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the U.S. Thanks to Javier Perez, uh, who is an amazing publicist, a great person to speak with, and just uh, sends me some incredible guests. And thanks to you for always being here. And thanks to PRN for this great platform. Gary Null um, has pretty much been a genius in creating this long before the digital platform really took off. Again, have a great day. Stay safe, enjoy, and keep living and laughing. My name's Mark Farrell. Have an awesome day. Insight with Mark Farrell. Check out this and all Insight shows on the Insight page at prn.fm. prn.fm. Have Mark speak at your company, your kid's school or college. Mark speaks on critical topics that affect kids and adults everywhere, from anti-bullying, mental health, drugs and alcohol, to overcoming adversity. Visit markfarrellmotivation.com for more info. Insight, Thursday mornings at 11 on the Progressive Radio Network. Network.